Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and I'll be your host. What I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes, luminaries from the sports science community, and as come to be expected, I'll also provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sport and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. So sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. I'm Brent Kokel, the founder of Human Octane, and I believe wearing the right gear can make you feel invincible. And all our gear is designed to make you feel that way by providing sport-specific functionality, like fabrics that repel water and mud, zippered pockets that are perfectly sized to hold goos or shot blocks, and ultra-sleek abrasion-resistant fabrics in high-contact areas. I'm a four-time Spartan Trifecta finisher, a tougher mudder finisher, and I made this gear to stand up to the shit we all put ourselves through. Feel invincible at humanoctane.com. Okie dokie, I'm back, and guess what? Brought the wingman. The bird dog? Yeah. Yeah, bird dog supreme. Bird dog supreme's on the horn with us today. We are going to talk about the mystery of cadence. I see in social media all the time, people are just flummoxed about, what do I do, and... Really? Should I just change? How can I get my cadence to blah, 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 blah? It's like all over the place. People are just really having a hard time with it. It's nuts, especially with the uh, with the ultimate mashing of coaches now with the peanut butter and jelly of, <laughs> of OCR coaches. You can't let go of that now, can you? No. You... Yeah, we're, we're going to get to that in a little bit because we're going we're gonna to bring it full circle and we're going to talk about the sandwich in a minute. All right. <laughs> Here's what I want to do. First of all, I want to debunk, demystify the whole notion of what the whole cadence thing's about. And then what I'm going to hope to do is explain, as best I can, the when, the how, and the why to make deviations in your cadence. And I'm hoping that when we're done, that those of you that are listening to this, and I hope that a lot of my brand new clients that are connected to the Yancey Camp program, and of course my my diehard clients that are just tied to me on a private level, are going to listen to this. You know, good news is the people I work with regularly and have been working with regularly, they already get it. They they're starting to get this worked out and and they're starting to see the benefits. But got all these new folks signing up, and I'm really glad about that. But uh, I want to try to help not only them. But all those that listen to the show have a better handle on what this whole cadence thing is about. You with me on this? I'm with you. I am with you. I guess <laughs> you're I guess reading a book or something, aren't you? I'm I'm not reading a book. I'm I'm trying to make sure that I sound studied up and smart because I've been reading your book. Um, but but no, I I guess uh, on the subject of cadence, are we also going to talk about our foot strike since that well, kind of yeah, is yeah, interconnected? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so work with me here. Let me let me reel this out. Now, I have to tell you, I, I'm just going to be point-blank honest about it. I don't like how I approached running mechanics in the first book. I think I did a really lousy job. I don't think it was on my radar back then. It was something that I was thinking about. It was something that I was spending a lot of energy on. 
but it wasn't the paramount concern. The paramount concern when I wrote that book was understanding heart rate and training. In retrospect, I have come to realize the folly of my way, and I've come to realize how important it is that we get all this sorted out. And quite frankly, the running mechanics should come first because that's like the number one question people are asking me. They're asking, every time I try to manage to get to that 180 strides per minute, my heart rate goes through the roof. One thing has to come before the other. I can't keep my heart rate down and keep my cadence up. Right? You hear that a lot? Tons. Yeah. All right, so we're going to talk about that. And you've already kind of pointed towards it, is that if you're not running properly, it's a nightmare to try to manage to get to that 180 strides per minute. And so we're going to talk about that first. Let's do that. Let's just take a scenario. The average runner, and forgive me if it sounds like I'm pointing at you, but a lot of the people that I meet, when I first meet them, the principal reason why I do a video analysis to begin with is to show them what they're doing. I can already see what they're doing. I need them to see it. I need the buy-in. I need them to understand that what they're doing is, in fact, what they're doing because perception most often is really, really difficult. It, you're thinking you're doing one thing, and in fact, you're doing something else. And that come to Jesus meeting. It is. And it's like, they're like, it, they're, they're flummoxed. They look at it and go, whoa, wow, wow, I didn't realize I was doing that. And then sure enough, what they're doing, nine out of ten times, is they're really overstriding. They're pitching their leg well ahead of their center of mass when they make contact with the ground, regardless of whether it's the forefoot, the midfoot, the rear foot, Whatever it is they're hitting first, if they stick their leg well ahead of their center of mass, the timeline in which to get the foot through the gait cycle takes longer. Okay? So overstriders have a tendency to run much closer to about 160 strides per minute. And if you try to punch your 160 up to 180 without changing the way you're moving, it's not going to work. And if you manage to make it happen... And I would love to see what that looks like, by the way. I promise you your heart rate's going to go through the roof. And incidentally, on that note, your heart rate will go up given that you've adjusted the frequency anyway. Because initially the adaptation is going to take some time. It's going to take a little bit of work to get you to a place where you could start getting that foot beneath you and the economy starts to show up. And that time, that adjustment period as far as your heart rate shooting up, it varies from person to person as well. Yes, it does. So the first thing that you want to consider is you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing as opposed to trying to gain the benefits of the stride frequency without adjusting the way you're moving. And I could go, I could spend another hour and a half talking about why you should do it. But for the sake of this conversation and trying to keep this thing narrowed down to about a 35-40 minute show, we're going to avoid all that. However, let me just tell you, I'm writing a book. I'm in it right now. Up to my ears, I'm in it. And I'm going to peel this puppy back so deep that when you get done reading it, you're going to go, oh, oh, now I understand what he's talking about. And it's going to start coming together. And for those of you that are in the OCR community, I'm going to be lending this information almost exclusively towards you. Trail runners, lot of hill running, 
this type of thing, a lot of the information that's going to be there is going to be there for you, which is going to be the, a huge departure from the initial book. But having said all that, let's talk about how to get to this place where you're starting to manage your pace. And when you're running, we've talked about this many times, you and I, Miguel. You have what we, re we refer to this as flat response. Now, flat response, in my mind, is representation of no influences, no external influences. I mean, you want to flatten things out so that you're not on a hill, you're not on a downhill, you're not on craggy terrain, and the best place to try to mimic this kind of environment would be a track. And essentially, yeah. essentially what that, that's all about is they create a track, they, they put a tartan surface on it, they make it flat as they possibly can, they try to bar the wind as best they can so that there's very little outside influence. And when you're trying to make adjustments to the way you run, this is a really good place to get this worked out. Because you're going to find that running downhill is going to cause you to adjust your gait. Running uphill is going to cause you to adjust your gait. And all these external influences are going to have play that's going to have bearing on the way you're trying to move. But what we're trying to do now, if I took 50 of the people that are going to listen to this podcast right now, and I take them for a run, and I don't say anything to them, they're going to have their own rhythm of the way they move. They're going to have a rhythm in the way they swing their arms. They're going to have a rhythm in the way they make ground contact, how much wiggle they create when they're flying through space, the position of their head. They're going to have this little trademark image of how they push themselves through space. And guess what? They taught themselves to do this. It's not inherent. I mean, over time it's inherent because... Maybe one day you bumped your knee on a coffee table it caused you to walk a little funny for a little bit. When you tried to run, you carried some of that influence from that coffee table with you. Yeah. Right? And so life, yeah. life starts to wear on us, and it starts to show up in the way we move. It's like you look at uh, you look at little kids when they run around and stuff like that, and most of them, they're doing exactly what they should be. You don't see any of them heel striking. You see them picking up their knees. You see them just running through space kind of like the way that we're taught to run in clinics, and yet something happens along the way where, like you said, you know, little, little adjustments here and there from injury or from le leading a sedentary lifestyle or from doing who knows what, and then suddenly we're all running around heel striking, crossing our bodies with our arms. Well, yeah, and I can go all day on this. I just got back from the grocery store, and the grocery store that I go to near my house is very close to a place called Leisure Village, which is a retirement community. And <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I mean, you know, I'm getting old. I, you know what I mean? I'm getting to that retirement age like this year, but I'm not as old as they are. I mean, I don't even know how old they are. But these people go in, and you look at their feet, and you know me. I'm a little weirded out, so I look at their feet. And they've got these Velcro attachments on their shoes and these big moking heels. And, I mean, they're just, they're just crippled up. They can't move. And, and the more crippled up they get, the more crap they put into the shoes and the more crippled up they get. The other day, I took a group of people, something I never do, and I said, I want everybody to take their shoes off. We're going to run a mile barefoot in the street. Ow. Okay? Now, it was an interesting experiment because everybody was a little freaked out about it because, as I've been telling people forever, avoid running barefoot. 
on these unnatural surfaces. Because yeah. you just never know what the heck you're going to step on, right? Yeah. But my neighborhood is pretty cool, and the streets are pretty clean, and you're really not going to see busted bottles and things like this. So I thought, what the heck, let's give it a shot. One of my clients, 72, soon to be 73 years old, outran everybody around the, the mile course we set up barefoot. That's pretty beefy. And the thing about her is she never, ever is injured. Never. She's run marathons every year. Over the last four years, the Big Sur Marathon never gets hurt. And then one of my clients who complains about his feet all the time, he was wearing those roly-poly shoes. You know what I'm talking about, those MTBs. Somebody somebody told him because he had bad feet to wear these MTBs. You know what I'm talking about? No, what roly-poly shoes? I call no. them roly-poly shoes because they're fat like in the, <laughs> under the middle. Oh, you like, remember that? Like, like Newtons or like what no, are we no, talking? No, no. So like it was like, um, it's like uh, an inverted curve. So the center, oh, the okay. center, the under part of your shoe, uh, foot is on the curve, and then you could like roll forward or roll back. And that's weird. Yeah, well, yeah, but it was it was huge <laughs> for a while. And you know, as a matter of fact, I forgot the company. Some company got sued. I think Joe Montana was was pitching these shoes about, you know, how it's good for your, you know, developing your butt muscles and all this. Skechers. Kind of, yeah, Skechers. Skechers. They got sued over the thing, right? Yeah, they're like, tone your butt. With right. our shoes. Yeah, but anyway, but anyway, I mean, we're getting way off point here. But the point, uh, yeah, the yeah. point I'm trying to make is the influence that is taken on from ground force. You carry it through life, and. If, if you've been in bad shoes, you're moving poorly, it starts to influence the way you move. And as you suggested, kids are pristine. You take a kid outside on grass, barefoot, let them run. And I'm talking about like a four or five-year-old. And they will surprise you that they're going to land on their midfoot. Their midfoot's going to be very near their center of mass. They're going to have a decent arm swing. They're not going to be throwing their head side to side. They're not going to be throwing their hips side to side. They're not going to be crossing their midline with their foot. They're going to be running perfectly, and they could do it all day long. Now, clearly, you know, they they have the energy to, to do all this stuff, but there's economy associated with the way they're moving. And then as we came up, we started to disturb all that economy. And here we are, adults, trying to race and doing bad things harder I think one of the comments I made today in one of the threads was, if you run poorly, whatever you do, don't run harder. Because running harder poorly is a recipe for disaster. You're going to eventually hurt that yourself. That much more impact. Yeah. Yeah, you just, you're just throwing yourself you know, to the wind, and you're, you're sure to hurt yourself sooner or later. But anyway, I want to talk about cadence. So the focus of the thing here is you'll notice when you make ground contact closer to your center of mass, and I'm going to go further and say, even if it's on your heel, but your foot mm. makes contact with the earth near your center of mass, it's a lot easier to bring that frequency up. And then what happens with a lot of people is they're under the opinion or the understanding that turning their legs over quicker requires that their stride becomes really short. As a matter of fact, there's people out there that sell the idea 
to shorten up your stride to get your cadence tightened up. And that's just a nightmare because then the cost of work is going to go through the roof. Yeah. All that I'm suggesting is that if you make contact close to your center of mass, when you make contact with the ground, there's a whole sequence of events that's going to transpire that's going to have you open up very, very naturally. Your stride will get longer when the force production improves, and you'll start noticing you're going to be able to go faster and faster and faster, and you're going to lower the cost of work. So when I'm talking about the cost of work, I think it's important to note that typically what happens when people try to run faster, their go-to move is to turn their legs over quicker, even though they're reaching further ahead of their center of mass. Now, this and they're not necessarily expanding that hip angle, right? Well, what are, yeah, they're, they're expanding their hip angle in front of them. But the point of the matter is, is that the cost factor associated with something like that gets exponentially greater. And the braking force that you create when you're landing ahead of your center of mass when you do this, again, whether you're on your midfoot, forefoot, or your heel, is going to get really expensive. So let's break it down. The analogy of the skateboard, those that listen to my show have heard me say it time and time and time again. Chris Polito, friend of yours, friend of mine, he messaged me and said, in your book, you need to talk about this skateboard analogy. He goes, that's the thing that resonated with me most that helped me to find my stride. And so let's just kind of visit it real quick. Put your foot on a skateboard. Find your balance. You're posted on one leg. Now you're stable, hopefully. But the way to become stable on that skateboard is if your posture is posted over that knee and your knee is just above your foot. So you can't put your foot ahead of your center of mass when you're balancing on the board or behind you. Clearly, you'll fall over one way or the other. Then you're going to draw your knee up, the thrusting leg. You're going to draw your knee up, and you're going to power into the ground. And you're going to try to drive the ground or your foot into the ground to propel your body forward. So you're going to drive down and backwards. But your foot is going to make contact consistent with where your foot is placed on the board. Otherwise, what will happen is you'll fall on your face or you'll fall on your back. Right? So either way, it's going to hurt. Either way, it's going to, go, it's going to go poorly. But what ends up happening is when you created this force, so what you've done is you've drawn your knee up against gravity. Gravitational force and your effort is drawing your foot back down to the earth. The higher up the knee goes, the more gravitational force that's going to drive the foot back into the ground, harder it goes into the ground and thrusting behind you, you're going to create hip extension. That's what's going to open up that hip angle. And then the byproduct of that hip extension is hip flexion. It's going to draw your knee back up into play, and then it's going to become perpetual. You've kind of got this rhythm now where you're working the elastic energy in your hip, and it's starting to push you through space. But it's imperative that your ground contact is going to keep you stable and balanced. When your foot lands ahead of you, you're becoming unstable. When your foot lands behind you, certainly it's going to become unstable. Of course, you can't do that running. You're going to fall on your face real fast. But if you make contact with the ground very near your center of mass, you're going to start to notice that the force production is what's going to create that hip angle we talk about a lot. 
It's not this mysterious exercise that you try to take on that's going to help you open up your hips. It's not a yoga class. It's not about, you know, doing all kinds of these stretching exercises. It's force production, and force production against that elastic energy is going to create hip flexion. Hip flexion is going to result in more power to the ground, and that more power to the ground is going to create more extension. So this is essentially the holy grail of creating speed. And now if you just manage it to the frequency that I suggested, which is 180 strides per minute, you have a really nice rhythm working for you. And now what should happen is your stride will expand and contract relative to the force you create off the ground, not the frequency off the ground, because you're not going to deviate from the frequency when you're in flat response. I'll say that again. You're not going to deviate from the frequency. You're going to stay at 180 strides per minute when the opportunity presents itself. And that's typically when you're not being influenced by environment. I have a workout I call Lung Buster. And the context of that workout is to run forcefully 100 yards to the base of a hill and then sprint up the hill. The only difference in what's happening leading up to that hill and going up the hill is how tight the stride is. The frequency may not change. If it does change at all, it needs to become greater. But you're going to shore up your stride length because you're not going to be able to drive your knee way up and you're not going to be able to depend on a whole lot of, of this hip extension as you're going uphill. Everything's going to get tightened up. You with me? And, I'm with you. And then I'm just so, visualizing it in my okay, head. Okay, so that can you do it though? I just want to make sure I'm not messing people up. No, 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 no. I'm I, I'm seeing it. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually already. I'm. I think I'm stepping ahead of it and just thinking about what my what my hip angle looks like or what my what my stride looks like when I'm going up the hill versus when I'm running on that flat. It's going to be tighter. Yeah. But look, if you stayed at the same frequency, what you're going to do is you're going to take little bites at that hill. And you're going to start to manage your energy on the way up. Now, if you try to power up that hill by cranking your frequency up to, say, 200 strides per minute, by the time you get to the top, you're going to be exhausted. The lactate development in your quads, are, you're going to be on fire. And then by the time it's time to go back down the hill, your legs are going to be rubbery. You're going to be all up in your brakes. You're going to be trying to protect yourself intuitively from the downhill and you're going to be in a really bad place. Yeah. So I would suggest to you that if you were to crank it up a little bit more than you typically might, and that's usually the case with most people, they tend to slow their cadence down as they take those bites. And a lot of cases what they end up doing is marching up the hill. And usually the march comes about after they've just basically fired up their quads. When you're incapable of tolerating the ensuing lactate, you're left only to march. But if you hit the hill well and you hit it with the stride frequency and just shorten up the length of your stride, you're going to be okay. Now, going downhill, what most people do, they either try to bomb down the hill and take really, really big strides and really, really slow cadence, or most cases what they end up doing is they're hitting the brakes all the way down the hill. They might traverse the hill to try to break up the speed, the momentum on the downhill. And in some rare cases, what they'll do is bomb straight down and just really jack their cadence up. Now, 
If you can pull that off, that's fine. Because on the way down the hill, gravity's in your favor. It's at your back. I can tell you that uh, Fabian Lidner, one of my clients, asked me once upon a time, he goes, when I go downhill, my cadence goes to probably about 220 strides per minute. Is that okay? I said, are you falling on your face? He said, no. I said, perfect. And you're good. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Because he could do it. Now, so this is what I'm talking about. We're talking about expanding and contracting the length of your stride, not really having that much change over the frequency of the stride. And now we've departed we've departed from flat response. Now we're talking about actually handling some of those variations that you find on the terrain that you're running upon. We're talking about variations in terrain. So let's yeah. let's just kind of visit a course. Let's not talk about a course that's real crazy straight up, straight down. Because that's pretty simple. You just have to be strong enough and diligent enough to make your way up to the top of the hill as quickly and as efficiently as possible and then make your way down the hill as quickly and as efficiently as possible from a standpoint of stride mechanics. And hopefully you've done the lactate tolerance training to develop the ability to mitigate the ensuing production of lactate that's going to try to shut you down in either case, up or down. But I think what really ends up happening in a lot of cases is time is made up or earned when you get to the bottom of the hill. And, yeah. and you've got a half a mile of relatively flat or rolling course to, to, to bring your speed up on, right? Yeah. Well, what is it? I don't remember who I was speaking to. Um, I think it was Yance. He was saying that, you know, the race is fought on the hill, on the climb, but it's won on the descent. So as long as you're keeping your opponent or whoever it is that you're chasing after within your sights on the climb, then you can catch them when you're going down. Well, yeah. And clearly there's there's call for spending quality time on your downhill work, which I like to program into a lot of my athletes, especially if they got a race coming up. For example, you know, I should say shout out to uh, Matt Liptek. He, he placed 10th in the elite course at Palmerton. Yeah, you know, he's coming up, man. We spent a lot of time talking about this downhill and this uphill and how to arrange cadence, and we looked at heart rate responses relative to what he's doing, and I guided him through it. He's a tough cat. He got out there, got it done, showed up in 10. And uh, I think that uh, in Asheville, he may even do better. But he's a student of the art. He spends the time working on the, the whole stride mechanics thing. And he's absolutely spot on frequency. And I have this going on. Incidentally, I've got some clients in Africa that are doing some very treacherous ultra trail runs. And it's interesting when they send the data back to me, I'm looking at the stride frequency, and they're spot on, 180 strides per minute, even though the terrain is undulated quite a lot. And I'm not seeing a ton of variation in their heart rate either. They're, they're very, very clean in their approach, and they're not blowing up. And they're running you know, anywhere from 50K to 100 miles. And I think the average elevation is punching up around you know, four to 6,000 feet. And downhills losing three, 4,000 feet of elevation gain. And they're just chumming right along, and they're staying their course, and they're, they're staying healthy, and they're doing a great job. So the point I'm trying to make is that what is typically done in running is speed 
is always a product of people trying to drum up more cadence along with more stride. And the stride is typically conducted in front of themselves as opposed to behind themselves. And the further out you reach, the harder it is to keep your stride frequency up. Not to mention that also invokes all sorts of vertical oscillation. You start bouncing up and down, a lot of energy lost up and down. So I've said a lot of stuff, Miguel, and I'm sure you have tons of questions. So for the people, I want you to try to ask them questions. I'm burning up, man. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about it. You know, what you said right now just really resonated as far as those folks that you're training in Africa, um, that they're they're putting in this work over long distance on undulating terrain and, and I imagine difficult terrain. And then I'm thinking about, about myself or about some of the athletes that I'm working with. And it's like, man, like I'm working on trails and I am working hard to stay at that 180. But there are some times where I just, you know, I where it's a matter of like, well, what's going to be more efficient for me in terms of energy expenditure? Am I better off just power hiking this 30% grade or am I better off just staying the course at that 180, you know? Um, and that, that's kind of something that I, that I wanted to, to ask and I'm sure other people ask, you know, depending on the grade, should I adjust my cadence? Should I go from a power hike to a run or, or vice versa, you know? That's you question need, number one. Yeah, I think you need to know yourself. You, you need to know going in, what the best course of action is going to be. And it's a function of preparation. So if I knew that I was going to race a course that's going to have a really long, steep hill, I'd be working that steep hill. I'd be working that steep hill to prepare myself for it. And I'd be working on improving my stride, not just my stride mechanics, but my lactate tolerance. Because you realize that what shuts you down is the ensuing production of lactate in the working muscles. It gets so acidic that your muscles get punch drunk and you just can't continue. And then your resu the result is you end up having to hike or walk or march. And yeah. so if you've had a history of that happening to you, you've got a couple choices. You could just requiesce to it and then power hike up and maybe do better than blowing up. Or you could prepare yourself to get into a place where you can handle it. And that seems to be what uh, well i know a couple athletes going into palmerton that were working on training their power hike and it didn't seem to to bear fruit they didn't do as well as i think they hoped they might and then there was guys that were able to run the hills and steep hills because they trained for it and so a part of it is this lactate tolerance which you know, we talk about it all the time, training the dark side. you got to learn to mitigate that ensuing production of lactate. And that's a function of the training and using heart rate to help you to control what's occurring to you. And But at the end of the day, it's all-encompassing. It's got to do with, first of all, getting into a comfortable, economical place with your running mechanics. And that is best going to happen at around 180 strides per minute. And okay. if you hit a hill that's steep and you look at it and you could see the top of it and you think it's short enough where you could pound up it, maybe the best course of action is to jump up to that 200 strides per minute and get to the top of it. But if you know that you're not going to be able to pull that off, you may want to try to stay at 180 and get up the hill as quickly as you can, as efficiently as you can. And if you hadn't trained for it, you're left with option C, which is to march up the hill. All right. 
Yeah. Cause uh, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about myself briefly just to use it as an example and then go into the next question for the people. <laughs> um, Cause this, like this hill in particular, it's like maybe around 200 meters. And because most of the work that I'm doing um, whenever I go run this trail, it's, you know, kind of like in my zone three or my aerobic zone, I know for a fact that if I run up that hill run up that that mountain to get to the peak um that my heart rate is going to go from aerobic to anaerobic so i just make the decision instead to just power hike it because that way my heart rate stays within the prescribed zone so if uh, when if i know that's going to happen i mean even though the workout is prescribed to be aerobic are am i better off or someone in my position better off just just saying screw it and just running up that maintaining my 180 and you know just allowing my heart rate to do that and just say it's like essentially lactate tolerance training or am i better off just like you said taking option c and just going for the march because i should be sticking to my heart rate (laughs) well now first of all don't let that heart rate thing start to ruin your life the heart rate that you're trying to adhere to the whole focus of it is to develop your aerobic potential and to to also help you to mitigate the ensuing production of lactate. So the intervals that I prescribe to people are touch and go around lactate, and the aerobic conditioning is all about Im- improving your uh, peripheral values so that you can process oxygen, release heat, and all that kind of stuff. But come race day, it's time to go. And I'll give you, again, I'm going to use this example because it's in my mind. Matt Liptek, all through training, we're really being cautious of what we do with heart rate. But come race day, I told him, don't wear your monitor unless you want me to see the data after the race, which incidentally I did have a chance to look at. And so I can tell you unequivocally that his average heart rate was pushing up on 170 beats per minute for on average, the length of that course, and I, I, I don't recall what the finish time was for him. but Almost think, the entire event, though. Right. And his yeah. his aerobic threshold, if I recall correctly, was probably about 145 beats per minute. But what really? ends up Yeah, but what ends, ends up happening is he's, over time, he's developed the capacity to get that creative license when it comes race time. And so... It's all about the training. It's the, the influences you create in training. You want to be as aerobically resilient as you possibly can so that when you do jump outside the box, your body is more prepared to contend with the stress that you're putting on it. Never thought of that, did right. you? No, no, no. I, I haven't. No, well, it, it makes me makes me kind of want to go out and tackle that hill a little later after I train and just see how I handle it. Well, but, and quite frankly, okay. that's what I recommend to most people when I work with them. I said, I want to see an aerobic time trial. Like, for example, I said, I need to see a 10K aerobic time trial, and then I want to see a 10K race pace time trial. I want to see the difference in heart rate responses, and I want to see the difference in yield. So if you're running aerobically and, for example, let's just say that your pace is nine-minute miles and then you go balls to the wall and you only pick up another minute, you got to ask yourself some hard questions, right? Would it be smarter to kind of meet halfway and end up with a, a better sustainable pace? All this information becomes power. But at the end of the yep. day, the thing that I kind of wanted to touch on, the thing that I really wanted to impart here, and we've kind of gotten all over the map, and I, I apologize for the ridiculous analogies I've used already. It comes down to getting very, very 
comfortable with running at the proper gait cycle. And it's a function of 180 strides per minute. And you're going to find that when you try to increase your pace and you don't increase your frequency, all that's left is for your hip angle to open up behind you, which is going to encourage more pace. I do this with people all the time. And they always tell me the same thing. I can't do it. I can't, I've tried it. I can't do it. And then in five minutes, I've got them doing it. And in five minutes, I'm, I'm having them encourage increases in their pace from six miles per hour to 11 miles per hour without breaking stride frequency. So they're essentially getting a chance to learn to expand their stride length relative to a standardized frequency. And the byproduct is the ability to adapt to greater speeds because they're creating more force. So how much can, how long can someone expect for things to like, I guess, no, I already know the way that you're going to answer this, but I'm just going to ask it just for the sake of it. Cause I know you get asked this all the time. If I adjust my frequency to 180, how long can I expect to see, you know, that jump in my heart rate, even at a slower pace before things start to normalize? Well, there's so many things. There's, there's so many things that cause your heart rate to jump. Okay, it may not even be exclusively that you're increasing your your cadence that's causing your heart rate to go off. You may tense up. You might be starting to draw your shoulders up towards your ears, invoking contractions in your trapezius muscles, which is going to all by itself start to cause trouble. You might start flailing with your arms. You might be crossing your midline, so you don't have a clean running approach to begin with. So you're really kind of all over the place, and all this collective disruption is causing your heart rate to go through the roof. But if you just took it slower and just really be, become conscious of the nuances of proper running mechanics, landing so that you're, you know, it's really difficult to do this with audio, but the contact point with the ground, you get this, this loading pattern that occurs that cause you to become very stable, which promotes the ability to have good functional movement patterns. And you'll start noticing that the cost starts coming down. You, you're not having to breathe as hard. You know, we had this, the, there was a, so, some threads today about people asking questions about, how do I breathe? Should I can try to c control my breathing? Trying to control your breathing is a function of how much intensity you're tossing at the work. You can't control your breathing when you're sprinting. Your autonomic system is going to take over. It's not going to allow you to have creative license over your breathing because your central nervous system doesn't trust that you're going to do the right thing. It's, it's afraid you're going to kill yourself. But the point of the matter is is that it sounds like I've evaded the question, but I'm, I'm really not. I think that what happens is when you start, you're going to get this aha moment where things start to fall into place. and You start going, wow, I got this. And you know, you know I'm telling you, Miguel, in my lab, Every client that I see, I get them to land properly on their midfoot and get them rolling at 180 strides per minute, and then we start moving the stride frequency up. Um, I've got I posted videos. People are probably tired of looking at the before-after videos that I've, I've thrown up on social media of what it looked like when they came in and what it looked like that day before they left. So when you ask me how long does it take, I guess it becomes a function of how efficient you are with your approach. And because I'm guiding people, it's obviously 
a benefit because I'm trying to draw them into the proper place because I know what it's going to take to do it. And they go, they're like giddy. They they come away from it. And they're just like blown away at what they were able to accomplish. And at the same time, we're looking at heart rate response. Now, if I push you up to 11 miles per hour and you've never run that fast in your life, and I can get you to do it even for 30 seconds, and you're able to do it at a frequency of 180 strides per minute without overstriding, your heart rate's going to go up. Clearly it's going to go up. But the, the more comfort you gain in that stride frequency, over time, the lower the cost of work is going to be. So persistence pays off. Don't worry about the amount of time and don't really focus on that heart rate for now. Right. Don't. Don't worry about it. You can't fix all of the things at the same time. That's where Bingo. People get, you know, that's where people get <laughs> yeah. into trouble. You've got you to gotta try to find the most important consideration. You're, you're going to start noticing that the cost of work is going to go down when your efficiency goes up. That's the way it works. That's the, re- that's the reason why you want to migrate to this greater stride frequency because you're essentially just not, not under the gravitational forces as long. 160 strides per minute means you're on the ground longer and gravity's pushing down on you into the earth. And you have to overcome that. You've got to project yourself up again off the ground to take the next stride. But the longer you're on the ground, the more stress, the more cost is associated with the work. And being at 180 strides per minute puts you in the air a little bit longer, and it reduces the work. And it reduces the risk for injury, right? Well, sure, because what happens is your foot's coming closer to your body, and that means that you're going to be more stable when you land. Stability, <sighs> stability is the key to getting this force production. You can't fire a cannon from a canoe. You've heard me say that a million times. And it I com- have. It, it comes down to that. You're going to notice that when you make contact with the ground in the appropriate place, in the, the appropriate sequence of events, what part of the foot hits the ground first, what part of the foot hits the ground last, and where the foot lands when you do it. And you'll start to notice that when you get the proper sequencing of ground contact in the proper space relative to your center of mass, you're going to be able to develop more force, more power. Do you remember, you probably don't, but when... Muhammad Ali was boxing. I don't remember. I know, but, but I mean, it's historic. <laughs> you, you could pull it up, and I guarantee you'll see scads of information All behind right. this. So I'm going to go use one of my analogies, okay? Okay. There was all this controversy about Muhammad Ali knocking out Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston was the world champion at the time, and Muhammad Ali was this young upstart, big mouth, brash kid that came up. And the odds of Muhammad actually beating Sonny Liston in this fight were astronomical. He hit Sonny Liston with a punch that had a travel of one inch and knocked him out. One inch travel. They had to slow the film down to see if, in fact, he actually hit him because they thought the guy just fell over like a bag of crap and just they thought he took a dive. But the point of the matter is, is it's a function of trajectory and force production. He landed that power in that little one inch of travel that had just 
devastating consequences for Sonny Liston. Pull it up. Look at it. You'll, to this day, they still aren't sure whether they want to buy it or not. Another good example, a little bit closer to you, is look at the crazy things that Bruce Lee used to do. There you go. It's all a, fu- a function of his greatness in encouraging stability and invoking power through that stability. If you look back at any of his movies, when he got ready to fight with somebody, you can see how he kind of gets grounded. You see him kind of like driving his feet into the ground. Yeah. Yeah, and then he releases this punch and drops these guys. And I don't know if you heard me say this yet, but quoting Bruce Lee, he said, a punch is a punch until it isn't a punch, and then it is a punch again. Have you heard me say this before? I have not. No, that's the first time I've heard you quote Bruce Lee. All right. But I like it. <laughs> so let me let me define what he was saying. A runner just feels like what they're doing is running until somebody helps them identify that they're doing it wrong. And then they learn that, in fact, this is not running. Then they learn to run, and then they're running again. That's what Bruce Lee was suggesting, because it all comes down to the mechanics of motion. And when you throw a punch improperly, there's no force in it. It's like hitting somebody with your purse. And then you learn to do it, and then it just becomes a punch again, is what he suggested. And so the running mechanics, it the force production is everything. How well you're able to manage gravitational forces and cause them to, to work for you as opposed to it pushing against you. Right? Yeah. And no, you're right. You, you dig a little deeper and you start messing around with this and you'll start to see what I'm talking about. And don't get discouraged by it. Don't don't get discouraged by the numbers. Just stick to it because as time goes on, the numbers will get better. And at the end of the day, it's not just about those numbers, right? It's about actually being able to do things efficiently and being able to do things in a way where you're going to be able to I guess I don't want to use the word prolong, but where you're going to be able to to run not just longer distances, but for a longer period of time in your life because you're efficient. I mean, I just have to think of like my dad, man. I mean, my dad grew up in, or not grew up, but my dad was was into running in the 70s, you know, when Nike threw out the big giant cushion and the giant heel and shoes. And now, I mean, he's in his 60s and he can't really run the way that, I mean, he can't run at all now because of how jacked up his knees are, you know? And, and I think that, that, scared me into into seeing you in the first place you know because i i want to run until the day i die man <laughs> you know and i'm and i'm and 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 granted i still have work to do and and to an extent i think all of us will always have work to do when it comes to our running form but i think if we are willing to put in the work to get that that frequency and to get that body mechanics down then it it just pays dividends in the long run the take home is this if you're having to increase your frequency and your pawing the ground ahead of you to try and create speed, you're making a mistake. What you need to do is slow down well enough, long enough, to find proper ground contact and then start to build on that foundation. And then you'll start to notice that you'll figure out the mechanism within yourself that's going to cause you to get that hip angle we spoke of, you're going to get more force production off the ground. You're going to do it more economically. You're going to manage your pace with stride length rather than frequency. 
Frequency gets expensive. Length is a lot less expensive. And you're going to especially find it when your ground contact is appropriate. And I'm sure I'm all over the map. I don't even know that I've done this as well as I'd like to do it. In my head, it's perfect because I've done this so many times. If I read to you the chapter that I'm on right now in my book, it would I was just sense. about to talk about that. <laughs> I was going to be like, I'm sure it's written beautifully in the book. <laughs> yeah, well. you know, we start ranting, and it's just like, it's ridiculous. I mean, it really is. But, Good uh, time. Yeah. So now that we've uh, we've taken on the responsibility of working with Yancey, and now I have clients that have been signing on to get a little of the love that I'm sending out. We refer to it, Yancey and myself, as peanut butter and jelly. But there's the opportunity to get peanut butter, jelly, and banana, which would be you. What are you? Right? Right? <laughs> I, th- I think so. I think that would be the ultimate. Hey, listen, I'll be the, the banana. If you, want, if, you don't like, if you don't like the banana, I'll be the banana. You could be the peanut butter. No, I'm look, I, as long as I'm either peanut butter or banana, I'm okay. I just, I'm not really big on the jelly side, to be honest. But, but yeah, I'm, I think that would be the ultimate mashup. I mean, for those of you, I guess a shameless plug right here, for those of you that are looking to do something a little crazy like Ultra Beast, World's Toughest, Toughest Mudder, or some other crazy event, it's kind of the, the the golden triangle, if you will, if you're pairing up with with me and Yance on Team Medina, and then you also end up throwing in the DHP program into the Yancey camp. It's uh, it's the recipe for excellence. At least that's the way I look at it. Do you, you know Ryan Ingram, don't you? Absolutely. So Ryan did the Leadville 50 on Sunday. <laughs> he just texted me. I'm you know I coach him. And he texted me. He said, you know what? He goes, that was so tough. He said, I was cool up to 12,000 feet. But right after that, he goes, you know, you start getting nauseated and just everything was just going wrong. He said, but I was so strong. I was able to conquer that hill. And now he's setting up for the 100-mile Leadville. Next year? Uh, this year. Whoo! That's yeah. going to be a good time. Ryan came out to me. He gets it. He figured out how to arrange the stride frequency, how to incorporate heart rate along with his training with the stride frequency, and here he is doing Leadville. And I promise you, I'm sure he's going to be at World's Toughest Mudder, and he's, he's going to crush it. He's going to do a great job there. I'm looking forward to seeing the guy, and I'm looking forward to seeing him finish Leadville. I'll, I actually, I'm going to be out there pacing. It's going to be a, it's going to be a rough day, though. I'm not going to lie, because I think I'll have just finished Toughest Mudder, and then I'll be jumping on a plane afterwards and pacing a friend at, at Leadville. So as long pacing? as he makes it to Hope, uh, I don't think you know him, but he's one of the guys that I won the 24-hour AMRAP with in, in December. Um, Nate Lerma. He's, he's a, he's actually really efficient, not just when it comes to running, but just in general, he's, he's a, he's a very dedicated CrossFitter. I know it sounds funny to mix CrossFit and running, but, uh, but he's, he's efficient and he, he finally got into the lottery. And so he is going to go after it. And so I'll be, I'll be helping pace him after hope pass. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So I got to ask you, cause now I'm curious. Yeah. Is he, is he still pounding it out in the CrossFit gym? No. No, he has drastically reduced the amount of work that he's doing as far as, like, um, 
you know, heavy lifting and things like that. He's doing a lot more of a focus on like muscle endurance, a lot of running. And on top of that, he's a, uh, because of the area that he lives in Colorado is relatively flat. He's dragging a sled around all over the place. He needs to make a bivouac up into the mountains. He's made some treks. I know he's gone up to Leadville. I know he's gone up into uh, the state forest state park area. Um, but definitely needs to needs to spend some time up there. But he'll be ready. I mean, the kid he's he's a stud. I'm not even worried about it. I'm actually more worried about pacing him to be honest. After <laughs> after knocking out eight hours at night in Chicago and then just being like, all right, guys, I'm here. <laughs> so so when's Chicago? Be, uh, I think it's August August twentieth or oh. something something along those lines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So that'll be a good time. I've been I've been training real hard for that. So yeah. I'm I'm excited. It'll be a good time. I actually got a. I'll talk to you about it after the show, but I think I think we forgot to do one more shameless plug though. You still have two more clinics this year, don't you? Yes. No, maybe more. Got, Actually, maybe more now. Um, what? I, I know we got Killington July 22nd and 23rd, right? Right. And then we're and we're then looking at Phoenix. Um, 18th and 19th of November. Yeah, Chris Polito's the point guy there. And but I've had some very serious interest in doing something in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, it's funny. It's like this one of my guys that mentored under me years ago when we were doing the, the running coach certification. He's he's certified by me as a coach. And he now is part owner of five running shoe stores up in the Bay Area. That's sick. And out of the blue, I haven't heard, heard from him, talked to him in a long time. He called me and said, look, Rich, I'd, I'd really love to have you come up and do a clinic. And uh, he said, we got a lot of people. we got five stores and just, you know, just. A... He also puts on these uh, pub runs. Apparently they put on 10 pub runs a year. Nice. Uh, but primarily his his business model is geared towards runners, road runners, trail runners. Yeah. And I'm going to try to introduce him to OCR. And there, i got a lot of people up that way, too, that are looking forward to the, the opportunity yeah. to show up at a clinic and uh, you know, it's close enough. Bay Area is not too bad. So we're hoping to do that in November. But at the end of November, nice. I'm out, man. I'm going I'm going to Mexico, celebrate my 65th birthday. And who knows? I may not even make it back. You don't look a day over 64 in my book. <laughs> yeah. Well, Miguel, um, I appreciate you coming on. I'm going to have to go through and sort this crap out, try to make some semblance of order so people won't go, what? The guy's so confusing. All right. Sounds good, man. Well, we had a good time. I'm looking forward to finding out more about that, that San Francisco clinic, but make sure guys, if you're looking to get your running form dialed in, get that VO2 max, that RMR, Killington and Phoenix is right around the corner. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook, Simply go search the Natural Running Network, drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.